Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports, Monday, October 14th. We are all back together. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. Uh, Barton, welcome back. We really, really missed you on the Instant Reaction uh, podcast. Before we get into your questions, and uh, remember, listeners, if you want to contribute to listener mailbags, the way that you do it is you go and you leave us a five-star review, uh, and then you go and add your question in the comments. You can say something nice about the podcast. If you leave five stars, you could even say something not nice in the podcast about the podcast, but we would like a question and we would like a five-star review. So ratings and reviews, that's going to be the way that uh, you get your question added to future listener mailbags. Barton, Tom, Barton, uh, how'd you do on the dance floor on Saturday at your wedding in Charleston? Crushed it. Yes. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was an outstanding wedding. The, the issue though, with the wedding in as it relates to college football, as this is a college football podcast, it was a five o'clock wedding. I got to see the morning games, but this was and and I would guess our our listenership skews southeastern because that's just where college football is is the, you know the, the most passionate. But um, this was the wet the guy getting married played college basketball. His he's from New Jersey originally. This is not a, a sports-averse group, but they don't care about a college football Saturday. If anything, they care about like how the Jets are doing or whatever. Bunch so, of nerds. Yeah. So there was no, I, I, there was no one that would like cared anything about watching football on Saturday. I was, I was on my own with my wife watching football at 11 a.m. Uh, or, or noon, and. The, the wedding was a very like hipster wedding on like a tea plantation 40 minutes outside of Charleston. So there are no TVs or anything. It was, it was a very like just it was all about partying and uh, there was no temptation to watch my phone. So I did get a little, little, little snippet of, of football in the morning, but uh, I've been playing catch up today and, uh, and yesterday on the rest. I'm glad you had fun. What would you say was the? Did you were you look not even looking at Twitter? You stayed Twitter free too. The only time I was really looking at my phone and just like my score tracker to see how my locks were doing was was literally like during the ceremony. <laughs> during the <laughs> during it's the, the worst part of every wedding. Yeah, there was a few like you know there there's there was some tear jerking moments, but there was also like some songs that kind of went long a little bit. And so I had I did have to pop out my phone a few times at that point. But once the wedding actually got rolling, it was a pretty full speed ahead type of event. And so I was uh I, I was engaged and and active in that uh, in that time. Mm. Uh, the actual ceremony really is the worst part of every wedding. Maybe not for the bride and groom, but for everybody in attendance. I kept yeah. I uh, we Parker and I had ours super crisp. It was quick. I loved it. What a, it was a great wedding. I think uh, Barton. I think we might have been clocked at like seventeen minutes from uh, from bride in to to groom and bride out. That's considerate. That's considerate of you. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Jerry Hannon barely had time to cry. Oh yeah, he tried. He tried to squeeze out them tears. Um, all right. Well, 
Again, remember if you uh, if you want to uh, submit questions for the listener mailbag, you can do that at our uh, podcast page, the Cover Three Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Pretty good weekend for the Oklahoma Sooners, so I want to start with a, a good big picture Oklahoma question. Wait this, a minute. What? Before we get going on the questions. I, I listened to the reaction pod and it was fantastic. And I'm so glad for your service that you provide me as a fan of college football and a listener. You guys did a great job. Uh, but there what? was not barely a whisper of Bowling Green Toledo. <laughs> and so, gentlemen, <laughs> I went ahead and took on the burden since I did miss this week of watching Bowling Green Toledo before this pod. And I'd like to give you guys a little bit of update. Yeah, please. Because we've given, because we've given a lot of grief to Scott Leffler and Brian Van Gorder and the, the Bowling Green cr- crowd, and they won straight up as 26-point underdogs. And, and I think the lesson we should take from this beyond everything else is I learned, but listen to our friend Ross Tucker on the podcast or on the, the broadcast, Anything can happen in a rivalry game, boys. <laughs> Throw out the records. I didn't know Bowling Green Toledo was a rivalry game, but it is a rivalry game, Chip. And you you jumped in there in the middle of this rivalry, a game that Bowling Green hadn't won since 2009. And let me tell you what happens. There was a 23-yard punt, a blocked punt, a 23-yard blocked field goal, a missed field goal, two muffed kickoff returns <laughs> that started drives inside the five, and a red zone turnover. And I believe that was all in the first half. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a remarkable, remarkable effort by Toledo special teams unit to give this game away. That said... I'm going to give props to this Bowling Green team. They came out with some juice. The crowd was even coming in a little bit fired up. It was a windy, crisp day in Mac country, and they wanted it more than Toledo. And by the time Toledo's quarterback got injured, because you knew that was coming in a game like this, in the third quarter, they believed they could win, and they pulled it out. So tip of the cap and and a scratch of the goatee to Brian Van Gorder and crew for getting it done. <laughs> Listen, you don't you don't just walk into Doit L. Perry Stadium expecting a sleepy October afternoon. No, sir. It's an environment. I yeah, no, that was my mistake. It was it was a hundred percent my oversight, and I had uh I got a little bit too confident, you know, to take it back to uh, the wedding. I, I don't know if anybody at, at your, uh, the reception that you were at, you know, maybe enjoyed themselves a little bit too much and got a little overconfident with their dance moves, you know, <laughs> like as I, I was feeling myself a little bit too much on this, this fade bowling green, you know, got too many gigs in just, just laughing it up, just yucking it. And, uh, and, and I laid nearly four touchdowns in a game that Toledo would go on to lose outright. So in a rivalry game, Chip, in a, in it was a, a rivalry game and, and at home, that many points in a rivalry game that's, that should have been a principle. That was, uh, that was on me. I will own it all the way. <laughs> I'll okay. tell you what, I didn't expect, uh, our, our, our bowling green 
under three wins to be compromised by Toledo. Uh, you know, Kent State, maybe Akron, somewhere along that. But uh, whoo, we got to sweat this one out now, boys. Yeah, we're uh, we're 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 still gonna be. You know, I'm almost willing to take that loss too. Like if if Bowling Green's gonna stand up and take down Toledo straight up on the field, now I kind of want to see him win like four games. No doubt. Yeah, get it done. I'm, I'm I'm jumping on the other side of that one. I've 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 enjoyed it too much. I've had a little bit too much Bowling Green hate. Too many Bowling Green laughs. Uh, I think I think that I should uh, applaud the the way that that team showed up. Um, all right, y'all ready to open this mailbag? Let's do it. You got mail. Uh, this one left over from the last week's mailbag, so we want to make sure that your voice is heard. And uh, it's a good question. Sam Bradford, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray. Jalen Hurts, one full season of college football. Who you got? I know who I'm going. I know who I have number one. I'm curious how you guys would rank them, like one through four. I I I feel pretty good about my number one. I would go Baker, Kyler, Jalen, Sam. Really? Yeah. Sam Bradford was awesome. Yeah, but he doesn't have he doesn't bring the mobility that the other three have. Gives me I can I have a, I, I could be more versatile with what I want to do with those guys than Sam. I mean, it, they're all four pretty great. <laughs> I would go you, where, where where would you go, Chip? Baker Mayfield, Jalen Hurts, Sam Bradford, Kyler Murray. Uh, wow. You go Murray last? Mhm. I go Murray one. Mm. I think I think I mean, Austin yeah. Kendall nearly took his job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But, uh, you know, Davis Webb took Baker Mayfield's job. True, true, uh, true. You know, um, I, I would go Murray because I, th- I I look at this from like a, de- like a defensive or, or if I'm playing Oklahoma, who am I the most scared of? Who do I not want to see? If I, if, I'm, if I am Oklahoma, who am I – just most confident we'll figure out a way. I would go Murray Baker, Hertz, and uh, and maybe it's maybe it's recency bias, uh, but I would go Bradford last. I put I, Murray and Bradford together almost in a tie for three. I feel more confident because we're just saying one full season of college football. College football, right? Yeah, I'm gonna take Baker and Jalen as my one and two. Well, I think the better question is: Does Jalen become the the fourth one of that group to be the number one pick in the NFL draft? No. Yeah, I think. Well, this this past weekend was a little bit that that dinged him a little bit on that front. Just the turnovers. Um, I also think that there's there there's going to be as much as Kyler was able to ascend from sort of being not thought of in right. in that way. I think Jalen Hurts almost has a negative. Like he's got to right. overcome the fact that we've seen him and that he's been out there, and that potential pro scouts and NFL teams have already been thinking about what he is and what he can be for a long time. Another another reason I ding Bradford. It's not just recency bias and the mobility. It's that when Bradford had that season in 2010, when he when he won the Heisman and then he went on you know, to be the number one pick. Like the air raid was a new thing. Nobody knew what it was. 
defenses weren't prepared for it. They didn't really know how to stop it. And it's like, it's the same kind of reason why we saw, you know, like Jason White have like a monster season with Oklahoma too, where I don't think anybody of any of us are taking Jason White over these four guys. And I think that now in this day and age where everybody not only knows what it is, but most teams are running it and most teams have built their defenses to stop it. The fact that Baker, Kyler, and now Jalen are having the kind of success they are against it, I think, pushes them a little bit further ahead of Sam for me. But to to your point, Chip, I think that if Hertz was coming in here as a grad transfer that had never played, was sitting behind uh, Tua for three years or something, and we've only seen flashes of how good he is, but not the full body of work and all the warts and all, if this was his only season a la Dwayne Haskins or, uh, or, or or Kyler Murray, I think he would be in the, in the conversation for number one. I agree. I really do. Yeah. But but uh, but because of uh, because of because he had to sort of disprove the theory, uh, he's he's going to be lucky to be first rounder. Uh, so I guess we got that one. Any? Do we yeah. got him ranked? We got him picked. Uh, I like this one. If the, the the question is set up, the premise, middle tier school with a top end coach. All right. If Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, Kirby Smart, I think Kirby Smart is top tier coach is arguable, uh, or Lincoln Riley were given 10 years to build a middle tier team like a Missouri, Colorado, Indiana, or Boston College, could they bring them to the type of dominance they have at their schools now? No. Sub question. So I guess the, that answers the se- next one. Extreme. Could they do it at Kansas or Rutgers? No. Well, I mean, hold on. Okay, go ahead. I, I, you know what? Maybe Lincoln can because of his offensive acumen. But Saban at this point, I mean, we've seen it. He was at Michigan State. Wasn't able to win like this wasn't until he got to LSU that he was able to get this because, you know, the talent base. So I guess a part of it also depends. It's not so – it depends where this mid-tier school is. If the mid-tier school is in Kansas, no. If it's in Indiana, no. If it's Missouri, maybe. Because you're close enough. You're as, as a member of the SEC, you kind of have access to that talent base that those other programs do don't really have. So I I think there needs to be some more context into it, but I just think that Lincoln would have the better shot simply because I think schematically he's further ahead of a lot of coaches. Whereas what Nick does while he knows plenty about defense. And if you talk to him about defense, you'll learn quite a lot. I don't think that's, what's going to win you national titles right now. And I think Dabo for as good of a CEO of a program as he is, as, as good as he is at running a championship program, I think that being at Clemson and having the advantages of Clemson provide him more than if he were just to go to a Missouri or a Vanderbilt or you know somebody like that. I think it would be a lot more difficult. Well, I I tend to see. I mean, I think you. Can, I don't think you can just say Saban and do it at Michigan State. So. False. Like, I, I mean, that was his second coaching stop. Um, I think he was still perfecting the blueprint. I think most of the time at programs like that, the coach doesn't stay for 10 years. In a way, what Dabo Sweeney is doing at Clemson is exactly what the question is. I mean, Dabo Sweeney took a kind of a, 
maybe like a like a mid mid to upper class middle middle upper class program uh and he's turned it into the juggernaut powerhouse blue blood he's as much as he i mean there's a reason he thinks they're they're still on the roy bus there's a reason he's trying to claim that it's because clemson used to be on the roy bus and so but i think the the key is you know Dabo kind of hit you have to get lucky a little bit you have to have a, a an administration that is going to give you the support and you have to have um, stability and most of the time these coaches get get the blue blood job before we get a chance to see if they can if they can do it um, and I think generally speaking that question like that process of building up a program that's not a traditional powerhouse is I think a really long burn and so I think it takes it's going to take you know, it's just not going to be a quick flip. Um, so, Dabo did yeah. it in seven. Did what? Like what? What happened in seven years? He got he won a national title. He got to the college football playoff. He took he takes over. I think in two thousand eight, and uh, Tommy Bound steps down. And I think in oh nine, maybe they make it to. The ACC championship game, that was with C.J. Spiller. Then they lose to Georgia Tech there. In 2011, they win the ACC championship, first ACC championship since in 20 years for the program. And that was, and then four years after that, they make the college football playoff for the first time, push Alabama to the brink in the title game, win their first one the next year. So if Dabo did it in eight, you would, I believe that one of those uh, – you know, I'll throw Kirby Smart out from that list, though. You know, from a resources standpoint, he certainly seems to know how to apply them. But uh, I, I do believe that if they were to stay there, and if they were to get the kind of investment that you can get with the right leadership in place, then yeah, I think that they could do it in ten years. I I will say though, if if we look at this since the end of World War II, so from 1946 on. That's what, 54 plus 19. So this is like 73 seasons. 25 teams have won a national title. And I think that, you know, if you look, the Colorados, the BYUs, the Maryland, which won one in 1953, these are very few far in in between. When you're going up and down the list, what you see is a lot of USC, a lot of Penn State, a lot of Oklahoma, a lot of Ohio State, a lot of Notre Dame, a lot of Alabama, a lot of Miami, some LSUs, some Florida, some Florida States, and then the Clemson's thrown in there. I don't think it's feasible to think that just because they've done it at these programs that they're going to be able to step into any program and do it. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm betting against it. No, but, but my, but my point is you like it rarely does the Dabo stay at the Clemson long enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because like usually that, because there's only, I think, I mean the, the smaller list, um, for national championships, even, even more so than teams is coaches. And so, if those coaches are aren't just at the blue bloods, if those coaches are like because Dabo's a unique situation in that not only and maybe maybe the other the other factor here is I mean Dabo has been able to keep his staff intact and and I'm not maybe Clemson can't weather the staff turnover that an Alabama can or that a Florida State or an Oklahoma can, but because he has this perfect storm where he is kept this this coaching staff intact then that's that's the added fuel he needs to 
to have this sustained big time success. But um, I just think the the more rare the more rarity is if you get a coach like that at a program like that, because there are only a, there's only usually three or four in any given season. Um, those guys usually leave. And I I think you can argue that now in the college football playoff era, it's harder to win a national title than it ever was before because. Yes, there are four teams that are invited to the tournament, which, you know, there used to not be a tournament. But not only do you have to be one of the four, but you have to be capable of beating two of the other three at a minimum. And we also, Whereas yeah, before, we also used to just claim it. We also that's what I'm used saying. to just have it you be could, announced. You, you could go 12 and 0 and not have really played a, you know, a lot of the other top 10 teams in the country, but the AP poll, well, they're undefeated. They're number one. So it's like now it's more difficult because you've not only have to prove it, but you have to prove it against the other great teams and you have to beat two of them every single season to do it. So I, I think it's far more difficult now than it ever has been in the past. There's two other questions from the mailbag that are kind of in this uh, pocket. Do y'all Are y'all cool staying here? Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll get in some silly ones in a little bit. Uh, who is relevant first? And here's the group. We got seven schools and relevancy can be uh you know we can define it as a as we want to with our answer tennessee ucla florida state miami virginia tech pitt and west virginia so i think cross pit out pitt's already kind of relevant aren't they i mean relevant depends how you're defining relevancy because Pitt compared to its own history is being in the like top five, top 10 poll finishes and being considered for national titles and Heisman it's, it's trophies. It's one of those 25 teams that has won a national title since the end of world war two. Right. Georgia, Georgia tech's got one, you know, mm-hmm. like there's there, there are uh, sort of different definitions. I think that for me, Pitt relevancy, you do go back to the fact that it's not going to be measuring itself against the ACC. It's not going to be getting to the ACC championship game, which they did just last year, which is a huge step. But I think that Pitt relevancy is when you are um, considered annually among the two dozen best teams in college football. And, and I don't think that's where Pitt is right now. I If I'm defining relevancy... I'm doing it in two senses when I look at these seven teams. One is ranked year in and year out, or at least very close to it. I think that counts as relevant because if you've got the number next to your name, you're you're somewhat relevant, especially if you're doing it every year. But in the other sense, I'm thinking of it as competing for national titles, not winning national titles, but being in the conversation, being a team that as it goes along says, hey, they could get a playoff spot. So if I'm going from those two criteria, I'm between Florida State and Miami. I think it's Florida State. I mean, Florida yeah. State's won a national championship and has Just a playoff a spot ago. in this decade. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think Florida State's the obvious answer. And plus, unlike Miami, it's not a small private school. It's a big public school. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, I think Florida State's, we, we got so upset about their season last year and uh, and even two years ago. Um, and yet that's really just because we're comparing it to like playing for national titles. Whereas a lot of these other programs mentioned really haven't been there in in any sort of recent 
respect. So, so yeah, I, I think Florida State is 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 absolutely an answer that I could get on board with. For some reason, I, I, I like I, I've got some draw towards Tennessee. <laughs> like there, there's I don't know. Like I just have this. I mean, though, and I look. I just watched um, that Tennessee. Mississippi State game, and I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm not. You know, come away feeling like Tennessee's all of a sudden going to start rattling off a bunch of wins. But you know, you credit them for winning, but it wasn't some dominating fashion. I just, but I just think that Tennessee, because that fan base is so rabid and, and hungry, because I know they are going to recruit well. Like, I, and I think they're going to recruit. I have more confidence in how they will recruit, even more so than Florida State, Miami. And I gotta believe that at some point that the coaching staff starts. Like I, I don't know. I'm just gonna I'm gonna take a flyer here and I'm gonna say Tennessee. See, I I think of it as, and and Tennessee could be in this group too. But I I feel like if you're Florida State, Miami, and this isn't to say that it's not gonna be Taggart or Manny Diaz, but I feel like those programs, no matter what, are always one right higher away from winning national or competing for national titles at Tennessee. I think that if they found the right guy, yeah, but I don't think there's like a very long standing tradition, or at least not in the last few decades, that have shown that, you know, they've made a lot of bad hires, I guess is the way to put it. So maybe they're still only the correct hire away, but I, I'm not as convinced on them as I am with Florida State and Miami. We got another question. And I, so the question was who's the first to win a title? A Big Ten team not named Ohio State an ACC team not named Clemson or the Pac-12. And I I went back with Florida State in mind and thought that it might be a non-ACC team not named Clemson. No. Because I, I, no, I'm not I, – because I think Penn State could be close. Closer than the, than the other options just presented, I guess. I don't know what I mean. mean I don't mean to say close in the general sense. But I think compared, like I think Penn State's they're a hell of a lot closer than Florida State right now. Like, yes, you know, and they're not like they're there's stability there you can trust, assuming James Franklin doesn't go bounce to USC, and there's and there's a recruiting pipeline that's kicking in, and I think Penn State would be my I think Penn State would be my pick. Ah. Uh, Yeah, I guess I would lean more towards the Big Ten just because I think that they have more. But I don't know. I I feel like in a way, if you just because like USC is in the Pac-12, and I just feel like USC is like Florida State and Miami in that sense, where they're one right higher away. And if no, USC, if they hire Urban Meyer this winter, who are you taking to win the national title first, USC or Penn State? That's true. So. I'm going to lean the Pac-12, but I'm really taking USC here. Yeah, I, I, that's a fair that's a fair rebuttal. The uh, the incredibly, I guess, like copy and paste stereotype is uh, just imagining that whatever Pac-12 team shows up to the playoff is just going to get dunked on because it's a bunch of Pac-12 sissies, right? Yeah. Yeah, you got to win. They're soft. They're soft. They're not good at the line of scrimmage. How could they win a national championship? Flash um, forward eight weeks when Arizona State's holding up the trophy. 
<laughs> hey, Arizona State's getting a li- another big win. They're getting the, there. The, the true freshman quarterback getting a little little recruiting juice right now. I'm kind of. I'm starting to get a little, a little, a little drunk with Sun Devil juice right now. Uh, shoving it in our faces. It's uh, did did you see the the way that game? That game, by the way, might have been the the three thirty window outside of obviously Alabama, Texas A and M, which everyone should watch. The SEC on CBS, you can watch it for free on CBSSports.com. You can watch it on the CBS Sports mobile app uh, with SEC Live, CBSSports.com/slash SEC Live. Outside of that, uh, the the three thirty slate was a little bit nah, but that Arizona State Washington State game was awesome. I don't know if we that, got a chance to talk about it much on the re- on the instant reaction pod, but that's uh that was a really 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 good win for Arizona State, which uh, I do agree is uh starting to give me a little bit of good feels. Yeah, I, I tweeted about it on Saturday. I said Arizona State Washington State is the best game that nobody is watching this week because it was on the Pac-12 network. So, um, all right. So this weekend, right? I watched. I did get a pretty good chunk of UGA South Carolina, and I got a pretty good chunk of Oklahoma Texas. So when I got home Sunday night, and I ha- and I was going to start digging into the DVR. Uh, you guys want to hear my my prior, my level of priority and where I went and tell me if this would match up with what you guys. My number one seed, the first game I like was really itching to watch. For I don't know why this is. It was Penn State Iowa, and that kind of that kind of delivered. Yeah, coming like, right I, I after really, my heart. Yeah, I really like I really liked that game. Um, so that was number one. Number two was Florida LSU. That game definitely delivered too. Number three. That started this morning. It was Bowling Green Toledo. <laughs> <laughs> that game delivered in a totally different way. Number four was Mississippi State Tennessee. Uh, did that deliver? Was, yeah, like it kind of did. I don't know. It was it was interesting to just see. First of all, if I'm a Mississippi State fan, I'm a little bit. I'm, I am a little distraught right now. A little worried. A little frustrated. Um, but good on Tennessee to get a win. And then the last game I had a chance to watch, and it was the, it was the next up, which was Louisville Wake. That was fun. But, Louisville's a fun team right now. Bananas. How about uh? So Evan Conley, the backup quarterback for Louisville, yeah, third stringer, who's now the who's, freshman, the third stringer, true freshman, was committed to App, and followed him to. Uh, Followed Satterfield and the staff to Louisville. I like. Uh, was it? Isn't Dwayne Ledford's the name of the offensive coordinator? Yeah, and O line coach. But I think I think Satterfield calls the plays. They've I I for Louisville's sake. I would hope to keep that tandem together. They are uh, they they're they're they got that thing humming right now. Right now, uh, Louisville is four and two. If you look in the ACC standings, they've got two ACC wins and they're sitting up up there behind Clemson. So. Uh, new win total for the Cardinals by the end of the season, over under six and a half. Over. Uh, sure. Seven and sure. a half. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that was a, but, yeah. but but we got we have a ding 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 that the over three and a half 
preseason win total. That's a hit. We got our first W of the year in that book, boys. So, but so, but that like team, a they're like it's a different team from last year. Totally, just like different vibe, different attitude. Their 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 offense is co- confident. That dude Tutu Atwell is a stud. They can their their special teams is looking good. Like Scott Satterfield right now. We just turned in all of our. Um, you know, mid-season awards stuff. I think I mm-hmm. voted Ryan Day for my mid-season coach of the year. I I kind of regret that. I feel like Scott Satterfield probably deserves it as much as anybody. I'm I'm not predicting anything, but Louisville, Clemson, eleven or noon in Louisville this weekend just could get weird. Could be, uh, could be a lot closer game than a lot of people are expecting. That could be fun. 22 points is the spread. Somebody hit me up. They're like, I think it's uh, that's too low, right? I don't know. So the the the, the next and you guys. So you, since you guys were were in it all day, let me know if there's anything else I need to put on my on my agenda for the day. But my currently the next game that I'm excited to try to dig into is Arkansas at Kentucky where Nick Starkle was 7 of 19 for 41 yards <laughs> and Lynn Bowden was 7 of 11 for 78 yards, the former wide receiver turned quarterback. You uh, mean my vote, my midseason vote for all-purpose player Lynn Bowden? Hey, that's a good call. <laughs> He's done everything. He's played <laughs> every single purpose. <laughs> that's a great call. I want to change my vote to that one too. Uh, so you got to put Temple Memphis on your list. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what else is shalending there and everything. Uh, yeah, you got this. That is true. You've got the the Baylor Texas Tech win. Yeah, I gotta get that in. And I don't know if you need to watch it, but the the Oregon win against Colorado is pretty good. Did you- I, I've never, I've never like. I can't remember the last game where just there was universal hyping of an offensive lineman like there has been of Pene Sewell <laughs> coming out of that game. So I kind of need I kind of just want to go watch and watch the end zone copy and just <laughs> watch the watch watch Pene Sewell do work. I do I would not watch Virginia Miami. No. Nor would I watch Wisconsin Michigan State. Although I mean you can that's definitely not on the agenda. There's, there's not. You're not going to lean. I, I know. Anything. I know exactly what that looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up on the other side, more of your questions and our answers next. Majors down and one to go in 2020. Bryson DeChambeau overpowered his peers at the U.S. Open. Can he carry that into November for a fall edition of the Masters? We're chatting about that and more on the First Cut Golf Podcast, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. We're in your feed week in and week out with tournament previews, picks, interviews, news, and analysis. Join Mark Himmelman, Kyle Porter, Greg Ducharme, and myself, Rick Gaiman, as we give you daily fantasy plays, winning bets, and the hottest takes about Bryson, Phil, and Tiger. So what are you waiting for? Come join our group and let's talk golf. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or anywhere else podcasts are found. There. 
there's nothing on Earth quite like this. Oh, what a goal! The UEFA Champions League is back at its new home on CBS All Access. Sensational! Stream every match of the world's most prestigious tournament live. That's incredible! The UEFA Champions League group stage kicks off Tuesday on CBS All Access. There's nothing like it. Well, before the break, we uh, we were talking about Wisconsin's you know thorough picking apart of Michigan State leads us back into our mailbag. Uh, the question is: Does Jonathan Taylor control his destiny for the Heisman Trophy? It's interesting coming off the Michigan State game because, as uh, Tom, as we were talking about on Saturday night, the the plan was clearly to slow Jonathan Taylor down, and Jack Cohn actually like did okay being able to uh, answer the call, step up, and uh, and be able to deliver when presented with that challenge of making some game-changing plays. But as we've got you know spotlight coming up in a couple weeks with um, the Ohio State-Wisconsin game, that game's in Columbus going up against the Buckeyes defense, that's, that's packed with all kinds of Justin Fields, Jonathan Taylor, Heisman goodness. Uh, but to, to the question then, do you think that Jonathan Taylor controls – uh, his destiny for the Heisman Trophy. No, no. Well, he's beyond none back. of us control our destiny, but. but he's a running back. He, let's be real, people. Jonathan Taylor is great. Jonathan Taylor has no chance of winning the Heisman Trophy in 2019, especially at the rate he's currently at. Because I mean, Michigan State held him to 80 yards on 26 carries. Yes, he had two touchdowns, but he only averaged the 3.1 yards per carry. Northwestern held him to 4.6 yards per carry. He has. They're, good defenses have been able to slow him down this year. And for a running back to win a Heisman in this day and age, when you've got Tua and Joe Burrow and Jalen Hurts and every, every all these other quarterbacks putting up these ridiculous numbers in these passing offenses, no, he's a running back. Unless he gets to like 2,500 yards or sets a single season record, for rushing yards in the season, he doesn't really have a chance to win the award. He can get to New York, but he's not going to win the award. It's it's a quarterback award now, and I feel like, here's a bold proclamation, a wide receiver will win the Heisman before another running back does. Wow. That is bold. Nice. What do you think? When is that going to be? Who's, who's, if there's a... Should be this year. Who? I, I, you can give me Devontae Smith or Jerry Judy as being more deserving of Tua than for the Heisman this year. They're doing the work. Yeah, I mean, if you could, I'll say this: like, if you could give a wide receiver group the Heisman, mm-hmm. I, I think, I think Alabama is, is is probably deserving. Though LSU's is pretty good too, but I think uh, Alabama's. I mean, I, I, I don't mean this to take anything away from Tua because Tua is 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 remarkable. But I do think that that Alabama receiving group is more impressive collectively than Tua. Yeah, and I can't remember the stat offhand, but I put it in a Friday Five a few weeks ago. It was something like 70% of Tua's passing yardage this year at that point had come after the catch. Yeah. (laughs) He's throwing, you know, nine-yard slants, and then Devontae Smith and Jerry Judy and Waddle and Ruggs are running 60 yards past everybody. It's... It's not. I'm not taking away from Tua because he's making the right decision every single time, but it's just his receivers are doing the lion's share of the work. It's just there's too many good ones, and no, none of the four of them are going to have the eye-popping stats you're going to need to win a Heisman as a receiver. Yeah, it's a perfect. It's a perfect storm. It's mm-hmm. just a. I mean, it's 
Alabama because if 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 say Talia was the quarterback right now, Alabama would still be putting up probably forty a game. It might not look quite as sexy, but they'd still be putting up big numbers because you're still just distributing to those guys. If if say the wide receiving group from I don't know when five years ago, whatever that was, they probably had like Amari Cooper and a few others, and 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 Tua was your quarterback. You still be putting up forty a game, might not look as sexy, but you still be doing doing a lot of work. The question is, you know, what happens to Alabama next year when at least two of those receivers are gone, and t- and two is gone, and then you do have Tolia or Mac Jones throwing to still a good receiving core, still probably have wa- still have Waddle, still probably have Devontae Smith. Um, you know, then you're yeah, I think you take a dip, but but not. You know, not a don't fall off a cliff, but I think it'll look a, it'll look different for sure. Here, here's some stats. These I I haven't done the math in my head, and I'm sorry, I'm not that smart. But here's the air yards for these four quarterbacks. Now, for the listeners who don't know, an air yard is pretty much how many yards the pass travels. Like the line of scrimmage is zero. So if it's like behind the line of scrimmage, it might be negative one air yards. If it's seven yards, you know, past the line of scrimmage, it's seven air yards, whether you're throwing it to the sideline or not. It's not the actual distance the pass traveled. Air yards is just how many yards past the line of scrimmage. In 182 pass attempts, two of his passes have traveled 665 air yards. So that's going to be about a five yards per, you know, pass. Joe Burrow's throwing 186 attempts, so four more than Tua. 1,337 air yards. So he's thrown over twice the distance that Tua has. Justin Fields with 142 pass attempts, 868 air yards. Jalen Hurts with 137 pass attempts, 870 air yards. Tua's throws are all very short, and he's got great receivers. They don't need to throw deep. It's part of, you know, he plays in an offense where he's not being asked to have to throw it. He, I'm not saying he's not capable of because we've seen him do it in the past. But this year, he's not doing it. I miss Blake Sims. <laughs> Lane Kiffin just scheming up uh, an Amari Cooper wide open for a 70-yard. Just run the ball up the middle a couple times, play action pass, 70-yard touchdown. Look for Lane's arms up in the air at the bottom of your screen. Yeah. Touchdown. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's take it to... How about some, some, we got some Kyle Trask questions. Barton, you got a chance to, to watch that Florida LSU game. Yeah. Wait, where, uh, what do we make of Kyle Trask's uh, success so far this season? Well, I think he's, uh, I think he's a legit SEC starting quarterback. I think he's a legit above average SEC starting quarterback. Here, here's where I'll, I'll want to take the question. Um, <clears throat> who, like where in the SEC, who would you take in the SEC above Trask? Like how long would it take you to get mm. through the starting quarterbacks in the SEC before you get to Kyle Trask? All right, so Joe Burrow and Tua, I think we, they, you know, we're not at Trask yet. All right, so Jake Fromm. You take Jake Fromm over Trask, guys? Yes. Yeah. All right. Do you take like I tell you who I'm taking Kyle Trask over? Bo Nix. Yeah, but I'm yep. also taking it I'm also taking him over Kellen Mond. Yes. Unless unless my team is down thirty. <laughs> then I want Mond. So yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. So Kelly Bryant. Same tier, 
But I think, oh. I think Kelly Bryant in Florida's offense, yeah, I might be might Kelly be better than Kyle Trask. I think that Kelly Bryant's where I draw the where where he falls. I I think that's I think that's probably a good way of of thinking about it. So that puts him fifth among quarterbacks in the SEC. How about this one? Who would you take him? Would you take him over Felipe Franks? Yes. Yes. There's, I, think, I, just, I think for this Florida team, I think I would too. I just did the math. If while we're on the uh, the air yards thing, Trask is at neither of them has been throwing deep, but Trask is averaging about five air yards per pass, whereas Franks was at four point two five. Although Franks is a little bit more accurate overall, but still, that's when you take into account that Trask is throwing deeper, that kind of offsets the accuracy. So that's a pretty like I think if you're Florida. And you're heading into this season, and you know what you got everywhere else but quarterback. And I tell you, sort of blindly, you're going to have the fifth best quarterback in the SEC. I think you take that and be pretty happy. 100%. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I'll say this, too, about Florida in general. Because, I, I mean, I know, obviously, they lost. And so, like, I, they went up in my rankings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was another week of progression in the way I view Florida. I felt like they were like, I think that they're, I, I keep, they keep on, I think they keep on getting better for one. Which college and, football teams can do. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, we, we spent too much time like, and Tom, I think you, you might've said something on Twitter about this. Uh, maybe it was yesterday, but it's like, we keep trying to, uh, you know, like readjust our, uh, keep, we keep changing our minds, but it's also because the teams continue to change. They get better and worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 They can get better and they can get worse. Agreed. Yeah, it, it's like when we're talking about a team in November and you're like, well, they, they played bad in this game in September. It's like, okay, yeah, they <laughs> <Right>. did. <laughs> right. Don't you remember that they almost lost to this Sunbelt team? Yeah, that was, that was, that was 10 games ago. <laughs> no, I'm I'm with you. I, I, it is an instant overreaction, but I am sort of in my mind playing with the scenario that Florida is going to beat Georgia and win the East. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, and, I, and I think that if you look, if you're watching, I think that the more Trask plays, the more comfortable Mullins getting being a little more aggressive with him. I think he feels like he could do a little more on offense with Trask than he was he was comfortable doing with Franks because I don't think he trusted Franks to not make some take bad out the decisions. garbage, do his yeah. chores, anything. Yeah. yeah. Like Kyle Trask ain't gonna light the world on fire, but he's less likely to do something really dumb. It, yeah, and 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 he's more likely to like it with Dan Mullen, I think it, it's a little bit like you know we talked about this in the in the lead up with the Kyle, Kyler Murray Austin Kendall quote quarterback competition. Part of the reason that I got tempted to be like this could be a real competition is because the idea of Lincoln Riley is really good on his own just scheming things up, and so if you have a quarterback that can allow Lincoln Riley to be Lincoln Riley then that's kind of all you need. So just don't be a quarterback that 
that can't execute Lincoln Riley stuff. And, and, you know, maybe there was like a little bit of a hint that Kyler Murray was just, uh, you know, based on literally nothing but like spring game and Texas A&M true freshman stuff. Hey, maybe he's just too much of an improviser. I think of that in the same way as, as Dan Mullen. Like, Dan Mullen's going to scheme you some guys open. Just hit them. And and while Felipe Franks allows you to do more with, with your legs, I think Kyle Trask allows Dan Mullen to be the strength of this team as a as a coach more so than Felipe Franks does because Trask isn't going to miss the open receiver. He's not – and he's going he's gonna to take what Dan Mullen instructs him to take. All right. Uh, y'all want to go to Derek Stingley and Tennessee's freshman quarterback? Do y'all want to talk Scott Frost? We got to get critical. All right. Is it time to give Scott Frost some criticism? Barton, I'm going to let you take lead on this since uh, you you were an early investor in Scott Frost Enterprises before they went public. Well, sh- yeah. Yeah, sure. As Angel a, investor. Uh, <laughs> as, as a shareholder um, who – you know, who gets on the quarterly earnings reports. Uh, I, I, I think I can both hold on to my stock and also be critical and say, this is take, you know, you know what my, what I'm curious about with this Scott Frost stuff, because, Hey, Wandale's come in and Wandale's look like the type of guy that we saw at UCF and Oregon. And, uh, and ultimately that's when this offense is really you're really clicking, but he's the only, he's really the only guy out there that looks like he would fit in on, on Josh Heupel's UCF team. And so I think Scott Frost is, you know, I think as far as I can tell, they're recruiting pretty well, but I do just sort of wonder whether it's going to take a little bit more time than we thought at Nebraska, because we, overestimated how quickly he could get the athletes for his offense to click because in Florida if you're at UCF like you can literally take the guys that Florida Florida State Miami don't want and as long as you're picking the right ones in Broward County you're still getting speed and you're still getting big plays in space and that to me is a little bit like I just remember watching because last UCF game. I, didn't, what, what, I don't know if UCF even played this weekend, but just watching UCF play Cincinnati the other weekend, they lost that game. But I said it. I think I said it that that weekend. Like I felt like they were still the better team. Like they just looked better. They looked that like I'd be more scared to play them than Cincinnati. And it's partly just like they have so many athletes on offense that can get the ball in space and do so much with it. And I just don't see that many of those for Nebraska right now as they recruit a bunch of good, tough kids that are coming in and, you know, they'll, they'll change the program slowly, but I don't see the pop and the, 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 the dynamic explosiveness that we saw at UCF. And I just wonder if that's going to take a little bit more time than we, we budgeted. Need to fix that defense, Scott. Is that, is that, is it that simple for you, Tom? No, because the offense has struggled a little bit itself. I mean, let me look. In four Big Ten games, Nebraska is averaging 17.3 points or 17.25 points, which clearly that's that's not what you hired Scott Frost to do. But I think 
they lost to Minnesota on Saturday night, got blowed out by the Gophers. But, you know, they didn't have Adrian Martinez. They were down to their backup QB. And even though Adrian Martinez has plateaued, I still think that it's hard to truly judge what Nebraska is with its backup QB in that game. And But defensively, that's where my main concern is, yes, because they, they can't stop anybody. And that was the problem last year. And that was what, you know, it was supposed to be that they were trying to fix this offseason. And you knew it wasn't going to take one year to do it. But just defensively, man, they're still pretty porous. <laughs> and they're still giving up a lot of big plays. And they're still giving up a lot of points. And unless your offense is fully functioning, and like Barton said, it's not as quick. It's not going to be as quick to do it at Nebraska than it was at UCF, both based on the available athletes local to you and also the fact that, I mean, not trying to kick him or anything, but Mike Riley did a lot of damage to that talent on that roster during his time in Lincoln. There's a lot more work to be done, which is kind of crazy to think, considering that, you know, Frost took over a UCF team that was 0-12, but the gap between 0-12 and and the top of the AAC is not nearly the same thing as being slightly below average in the Big Ten talent-wise to the top of the Big Ten talent-wise. So, yeah, there's still work to do. You could criticize them plenty, but... I mean, part of it was we probably had way too high expectations too quickly. We took the four and two finish to last season and extrapolated it in an unfair way to uh, proper mm-hmm. expectations for this Nebraska team. We're like, yeah. yeah, they were four and two to finish the year. That was in six games. What's going to happen in 12 games? Nebraska's what? Eight and four, nine and three winning the, they were the preseason pick to win the big 10 West. It's pretty yeah. amazing. And I think in, in some ways, too, we also, you know, we overlooked maybe what how other teams finished last year. Because if you looked at Minnesota, you know, they won three of their last four. They beat Purdue and Wisconsin. Then they killed Georgia Tech in the bowl game. They played Northwestern tough in a 10-point loss. So it's like we you, they kind of got – I kind of wrote them off after Illinois crushed them. But they played well from that point on, and they've carried that into 2019. Let's keep it in the Big Ten. Uh, two questions that are related. Number One question, what does Michigan have to do to win a national title? Uh, that would be a, get a time travel device. Uh, and number two is, <laughs> is Indiana uh, finally going to beat Michigan this year? The scheduling gods have given um, them the best sandwich spot ever. So we can discuss Indiana's chances to beat Michigan this year, or we can discuss your favorite sandwich spots. Uh, But let's start with Michigan national title. What do they have to do? Beat good teams. (laughs) I mean, I don't, I feel like Jim Harbaugh has done a lot of things correctly, but I don't think they're talented enough yet. And I don't think that they're, schematically superior to their opponents yet. And we saw, I mean, you look at the example with LSU, LSU's always had plenty of talent, but schematically it was just kind of, you know, stuck in the past and not willing to change. And it was struggling again because of it against good teams. And it made the change this year and it's working. Michigan made the change or at least attempted to make the change. And to this point it's not working. And I think it's a combination of talent and schematics. I'm scrambling right now to try to find the tweet, but we we as as we all know, we have the very best listeners in all of the land. Chip, and I, and, and I'm not sure if you were on this tweet or not, Tom. Uh, 
I can't. Uh, I'm just killing me. That I don't have this guy's name. I can't give proper credit. But he's a regular listener. He's tweeted before. In fact, I think he played at like Holy Cross. He played in Patriot League. So he always tweets at me like Patriot League, Ivy League inside stuff that, <laughs> that no one else would care about. But he tweeted about, you know, when you look back at um, Penn State switch to the spread under under Joe Moorhead. Oh, yeah. I remember this tweet. Were you on it? Yeah. You remember that? And mm-hmm. so it was, it compared the first five games, six games, whatever it was, compared very favorably to the first five or six games for this year for Michigan under Josh Gaddis. And I think the, the, the point is, I don't think is necessarily to be like, oh, they're about to break out. I think the point is just to be like, we are allowed to still continue to, to give a little bit of, uh, I don't know, maybe just hope for this Michigan offense that they are still in the midst of a fairly dramatic um, philosophical shift offensively. And it might just take a little bit of time. And I still think, because ultimately this is a big picture question, less, you know, offense and Gaddis question. Found it. All right. Yeah, bring it. You got it? Yeah, it's from Chris Nielsen at Chris Nielsen 44. So I've seen a ton of the Michigan media I follow saying how awful the offense is through five games. Here's how they compare to the 2016 Penn State team going through a similar scheme change. Total offensive yards per game, Penn State, 365. Michigan, 367. Total points per game, Penn State, 29. Michigan, 28. Record, Penn State, 3-2. Michigan, 4-1. There you go. So I I think... That's a, I think that's good to just bring a little bit of perspective to this. And, and secondly, I still, in the Michigan deal, like you still have to circle back to whatever it was when they lost like three games by five points combined and they were, they were this close to being in the playoffs. It's not as if they're this chasm away. They're, they're still, I've, I said it before, as I mean, they're not going to be in year in year out under Jim Harbaugh, but I think they can still get in with with the right set of leadership in the locker room and sort of the 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 the, the perfect confluence. Um, so I'm not I, I'm not giving up on Michigan to be a, a, even a national title team. I just think I have given up on Michigan being a perennial title contender. Yeah, I I think Michigan needs a quarterback. Yeah. That could carry them in, and when they're when they're struggling, they need a dude playing quarterback who they could rely on to drive them down the field in a crucial moment and get them a score. And I just don't think that they've had that under Jim Harbaugh yet. And some of that's on Harbaugh. I mean, Harbaugh is you know a former quarterback himself. He's supposed to be a you know considered somewhat of a QB guru, and we just haven't seen it yet. And I think that they need that. And I don't think that quarterback's on the roster unless no. Joe Milton, who's like the third string guy, is 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 secretly this this stud that's waiting to, to emerge. I I don't Patterson Jay Patterson clearly isn't, and I don't think that Dylan McCaffrey. I, I, my my hunch is he is is not, and not, not my hunch. I I really don't think he is either. So maybe Joe Milton is the is the secret sauce here, uh, and I and, and maybe they've got a really good quarterback committed. Um, in the class of 2021, maybe that's the dude, but we'll see. When's the last time Michigan had that quarterback? I mean, are we going back to 2006? I mean, yeah, it's been a while. It's, I mean, Denard was that guy, but Denard was a completely different 
type of quarterback. It wasn't, you know, uh, I don't know. I would go with Denard, but I feel like if for what Michigan wants to do now, I don't think Denard really fits what Harbaugh's looking to do and what they're looking to do offensively. So that's a tough one. I mean, would it be greasy? Would we be going back that far? Maybe. I mean, really? Tom Brady? Yeah. Drew Henson? I don't know. It's been a while, man. Chad Henney? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, and then uh, the other question from our, our Indiana contingent. Michigan has won 23 straight against Indiana. It's a streak that goes all the way back to 1988, um, and th- they are playing in Bloomington the week before uh, they host Ohio State, and the week after they play Michigan State at home. So that's the sandwich spot, you know, not a, not not a Jersey Mike's, not a Jimmy John's, but it's the sandwich spot between Michigan State and Ohio State. It's on the road. Do y'all think Indiana can pull off the upset? I love this question, not because I have an answer, but just because I was completely unaware of this situation, or at least while I was, I wasn't looking at it from that viewpoint of, oh wow, Indiana's in a sweet spot for this game. A sweet spot with a ridiculous drought. Yeah, and plus, let's also Indiana. I mean, not too shabby so far this year. They've they've been blown out by Ohio State, but they played Michigan State tough. And after you know shutting out Rutgers thirty five to nothing, they're four and two. And you look at their next three games. They've got Maryland and Nebraska. Both are on the road. Yes, and then Northwestern. This is a team that could be bowl eligible by early November, man. Yeah, no. Nah. You know, we had we had Tom Allen in the in the coordinator in the sec somewhere in five years hey if, if if michael penix keeps on playing like he's been playing and uh you know they got a loaded running back room this is uh yeah hey i'm i'm on board for a sandwich spot like that yeah i'm not gonna say it's gonna happen but i definitely think this is the best opportunity indiana's had in a long time just comparing the timing plus with how the team looks early I just, lock. i love that i love that i love that an indiana fan is like how long has he been eyeing this? Like when the schedules came out, yeah. Oh like, yeah, for sure. He been like a like a year in advance, he's been looking at this circle and this date. I love that. Um, you've been uh, you did get your eyes on Tennessee's win against uh, Mississippi State, Barton. I'll let you take the lead here because it had both uh, both questions about Tennessee's quarterback and also uh, for Derek Stingley. So how are we feeling on both those? Well, so. Brian Marr is he's got he's got a little bit of swag to him. Um, he is he's making some big throws. He's athletic. I I mean I'm not I, I'm not sold at him being totally different than Jared Guarantano. Jared Guarantano, like yeah, we've we've seen some some promising moments from him too. So I. Unfortunately, I'm not ready to dub Brian Marr as the as the future. Um, I think he's good. I think he's a quality starter, and I think that Tennessee has has found something to be encouraged by in him. But ultimately, like even over the weekend, he was four of seven for 61 yards. And I know he just played a, basically a half, maybe even like a quarter and a half. But I, I was actually, I mean, I think. What's encouraging, I mean, in that game in particular, 
Tennessee, Tennessee was fortunate to be playing a team that had a hard time stopping their run game. Um, because they could, they really could dictate things with the run game and and at without asking too much of their quarterbacks. Guarantano came in there and was and credit to him, he was very patient and took what was asked of him and and didn't get didn't seem to be frustrated when all they were doing was running it over and over again. He went six of seven for 106 yards and a touchdown. Um, Mar had two interceptions. So like I, I there there's I think there's a I don't want Tennessee fans to get like overly excited about Brian Marr. Like, let the guy grow a little bit. Uh, he's got a ways to go, but he's he's certainly talented. Stingley, on the other hand, hey, get get jacked about that dude. You can go go as go as far as you want with that one. Top that, ten pick. That dude's special. He's gonna be a top ten pick. Yeah, we should have had him number one in our rankings. Yeah, but you call, you called it uh, in one of our camp buzzes. Because we, yeah. we we ran through the the series of uh, an LSU defensive back uh, breaks out, so then they start you know the quarterbacks start avoiding him, and then all of a sudden you you look at the other cornerbacks and you're like oh well what about that guy and then it, then it's the next one and every single year we've got a new freshman or a sophomore who emerges as the most talented apparent you know like apparent as in appears to be you know like one of the special players in that secondary and he's just he do you think he's more than just the next in line like is is there any is there something because he did he didn't have the got lost on a couple balls early in that game against florida but came up massive at the end of it no i mean florida had more actually had more success against him than anyone's had this year um which is saying something there was some i mean florida's got some savvy receivers and kyle pitts is like Kyle Pitts a is matchup legit. nightmare. Yeah, Van Jefferson is not who you want to be going against if you're a freshman, just because he's such a craftsman. But, um, but I think that Stingley, like, I think it'll be a top five pick, and and I think he is in a long line of LSU DBs. I think he's going to end up being one of the best. Um, and 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 it's I mean it's just the the tools are there. I mean. Dave Aranda is calling him the best player on their defense as a true freshman. I mean, he gets, he gets unprecedented internal hype. So often, coaches are pumping the brakes, like pulling what I just did on Brian Marr, and like, you know, hey, just a freshman, but man, we're, you know, he's doing a great job. Like, there, there's been, ever since the day he arrived on campus in December of 2018, he's been hyped up by that entire staff and he really to this point he's not he is not he's he has lived up to every expectation yeah to to get sort of off topic but we talked about Alabama's receivers earlier in the show I mean one of the reasons why I think LSU has such a good chance of beating Alabama is that while nobody is stopping Alabama's receiving core the team that probably has at least two top 10 NFL draft picks in its secondary probably has a better chance than anybody yeah and then with, with Alabama, though, you got to be good across the board, and LSU mm-hmm. is because they got they got you know Delp Delpit will have to handle the slide or Jacoby Stevens or Kerry Vincent like those and those were the guys that got tested some against Florida too. I mean, but that's that's what's going to be fun about that matchup is that's just a bunch of NFL guys going one on one. Um, I I think we're uh, I, th- I think we got to put the bag got got to secure the bag. And put it, put it back. the The box is open. 
the box is always open. Of course, uh, we want our listeners to go and uh, and and get it. <laughs> leaving uh, leaving a podcast review for the first time ever because I need you guys need to hear you guys talk about Bowling Green Toledo. So we did it. <laughs> we delivered exactly what you were looking for. Uh, go to the Cover Three College Football Podcast page. Leave a five star rating and a review. Leave your question in the review, and we will pull it out for a future mailbag episode. They are piling up. We are getting to them. We love the questions. We love the interaction. Please keep it coming. Uh, of course, you can always find us twenty four hours a day, seven days a week on Twitter. You can follow him at Barton Simmons. You can follow him at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, this has been fun. We'll uh, we'll reconnect on Thursday for the locks. Is there? Thank you. down and one to go in 2020. Bryson DeChambeau overpowered his peers at the U.S. Open. Can he carry that into November for a fall edition of the Masters? We're chatting about that and more on the First Cut Golf Podcast, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. We're in your feed week in and week out with tournament previews, picks, interviews, news, and analysis. Join Mark Immelman, Kyle Porter, Greg Ducharme, and myself, Rick Gaiman, as we give you daily fantasy plays, winning bets, and the hottest takes about Bryson, Phil, and Tiger. So what are you waiting for? Come join our group and let's talk golf. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or anywhere else podcasts are found.